Hello, I'm uh, with Christine Caldwell and uh, uh, Ray Johnson. So, uh, Christine and Ray, maybe, do you want to say a few words of introduction about who you are before we start this conversation? Sure, this is Christine, and I am the founder and former chair of the Somatic Counseling Psychology Department at Naroba University. Uh, I guess uh, germane to this particular conversation, I have a background in publishing and research, uh, both in the research area, both qualitative and quantitative. My first research was quantitative, a correlative study of personality characteristics and movement behavior. And then my doctoral work was qualitative, looking at the uh, somatic experience of people in addictions recovery. Mm -hmm. And currently I'm uh, biting my nails, worrying about uh, whether or not I'm going to get a $250,000 grant to study the somatic basis of compassionate love. Wow. And I'm Ray Johnson. I'm the chair of the somatic psychology department at Santa Barbara Graduate Institute. And um, I have been a researcher for about the last 12 years. I've been the principal investigator on four research studies, both mixed methods and um, qualitative approaches, all of them having to do with movement therapy, somatic education, somatic psychotherapy. Um, I've also, for the last oh, over 20 years, been a clinician um, throughout. So I feel as though, uh, like Christine, I wear both hats. And it's because of the fact that I, I feel as though I can relate to both the clinical perspective and the research academic perspective that I'm most interested in in the topic. Mm -hmm. So bringing up a, an important point that both of us are both academics and uh, clinicians. Uh, for my part, I've also been in uh, private practice for about 30 years. So that's uh, that's a good you're in a in a great position to talk about the divide the uh, the misunderstandings that sometimes can occur between clinicians and academics. Maybe I'll this is Ray again. Maybe I'll I'll take this one just to to start us off. I was aware um, when we met at the most recent USADP conference that. Um, a good number of our members, I think quite rightly, feel some distance from research and from academic work because, in practical terms, they haven't necessarily been involved in that kind of work since they finished their degrees. And for some of them, those degrees did not necessarily involve being a principal investigator in original research. And I think that there can be a, a, a sense that research is difficult, complicated, elitist, um, inaccessible, and that research can dictate theory and policy and practices 
that clinicians, I think, often very, um, very appropriately can challenge as not being sufficiently related to the on-the-ground experience of working with people. So I think that there's a, I think there's historically um, some, some disconnect between two different cultures. Yeah. And because I feel as though I'm a, a card-carrying member in both cultures, <laughs> I would really like to see the intersections between a, a clinical perspective and a research perspective identified because I think there's a, a lot of common ground. So I think it really helps. I want to just um, let it sink in that uh, it seems like there's a different dimension that's introduced by talking about different cultures and a sense of looking at the intersection of these two cultures, you know, as opposed to looking at it as an opposition or uh, a struggle. That's a good point, and it's actually an excellent clinical point. Uh, because we see in an individual client how they can have conflicts with different aspects of their own personality and that that conflict is actually not uh, real. It's manufactured. Uh, and it's the same here. There's really uh, a beautiful synergy that can occur between clinical work and research work. Uh, even if uh, for instance, a researcher never becomes a clinician or a clinician never becomes a researcher. There's still a tremendous amount of synergy. And I think one of the ways in which Ray and I are appreciating being asked to do this interview is that we see there being a kind of unifying principle between the two that we're calling research mind. Mm-hmm. And that that research mind, uh, which, you know, I'm not sure the, the name will survive very long as such. You might want to think of a much more poetically nice name. But there's a way of approaching both a clinical uh, experience and a research experience that are actually more than companionable. They, they actually stem from, I think, the same roots. And, uh, you know, as academics, we tend to call those roots things like critical thinking and uh, and such. And, And yet, there's a way in which I first developed those skills by really working hard to become a good clinician. Mm -hmm. So I want to just put a footnote about process here, that um, what we have started to do is to acknowledge and validate, you know, the feelings of antagonism, suspicion, discomfort that there can be between clinicians and academics, but having acknowledged it, we're just moving on then to the similarities to the, uh, and actually to um, something that is not just a synergy, but some underlying uh, force that is very powerful, that drives both activity, that clinical thinking, that critical thinking in a positive sense. I think that for me, the way I understand that shared perspective actually goes back to an attitude of curiosity, mm-hmm. humility. That for me over the years, I discovered that 
if I was not genuinely curious in a very open-minded way about my client's experience. I was going to get in their way and impair their unfolding process. That I needed to be absolutely interested, absolutely attentive, but not pushing the river. Mm-hmm. I needed to be situated in that relationship such that I could ask questions that were genuinely curious. Mm-hmm. Not leading questions, not let's direct this client over here because we have a suspicion, but what, what's that like? Particularly, I think, when you're inquiring about somatic experience, when you're inquiring about an experience that's so inherently complex, subtle, and nuanced that you can't possibly know in advance exactly what it's going to be like for a client. You need to be curious, and you need to be humble. You need to assume that you're not even with very highly tuned perceptions mm-hmm. to know exactly what it's like to be in their body. And, and so you really do rely on that capacity to ask very real questions and to do it in a way that supports them, that facilitates their ability to answer and to articulate what's going on. I think that that's the same process mm-hmm. when asking a research participant, particularly in a qualitative study, what's going on here? You don't want to be asking them leading questions. You don't want to be mm-hmm. imposing your hypothesis on them. You actually want to lead them to a place that they may not be able to get to themselves to facilitate the exploration and articulation of an experience that's meaningful to them. With the assumption, and this is the piece that I think is is perhaps unique to researchers, you facilitate the articulation of that experience with the understanding that the articulation of that experience is useful not just to them as a research participant, but to a whole bunch of other people Mm. who are trying to understand this phenomenon. So that's where a clinician um, maybe ordinarily would stop and say, okay, good, you've got something that's useful for you. Mm-hmm. I understand it, and we're together in this experience. Fabulous. And that's enough. For a researcher, it's, ah, no, I need to find, now my task is to figure out a way to communicate what you've communicated to me and frame it in a context that makes it intelligible and relevant to a whole bunch of other people. Very nicely put, yes. So as I'm I'm hearing it, I just think this maybe um, there is, of course, that major difference, but maybe the difference in a way is one of degree in the sense that the clinician still has to maybe articulate that lesson uh, in such a way that they can also, uh, you know, use that knowledge for themselves with other people or so that there is always that activity of researcher that exists in a clinician in terms of, um, you know, acquiring new knowledge through clinical practice. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. We're, we're benefiting from the results of our own research. Yes. <laughs> As do therapists benefit from uh, the process of doing therapy. 
uh, one of our less well-kept secrets. <laughs> Christine, would you add something to uh, what Ray has uh, has said, or just anything that uh, that sparks that sparked up by uh, by these comments? Yeah, yeah. It's funny because as Ray was speaking, I was remembering a, a class that I'm actually teaching for Santa Barbara this weekend. We've been uh, online uh, previous to the class meeting, and I've been asking the students online what about experiences they've had, uh, good therapeutic experiences, and then bad therapeutic experiences, and then from there to extrapolate what they think are the characteristics of a good therapist. And what I'm struck with is how the the terms and characteristics that the students came to uh, could just as easily have been applied to a researcher as well as a clinician. So I think there's a, a lot, uh, a lot we can really take heart with there. And certainly, a, a researcher is going to apply uh, this same route that we're talking about differently. And uh, one of the issues is particularly that um, this open-mindedness that Ray is talking about and the curiosity and the non-attachment to outcome uh, is very, very crucial in research. Uh, one of the things that will kill good research is when you want the result to come out a certain way. And uh, so instead of wanting to learn something, you start to want to prove something that you already think is true. And uh, we know how that gets us in trouble clinically, and it also gets us in trouble from a research standpoint. Mm -hmm. So this idea for me about how I have one foot in research and one foot in uh, clinical work, I feel like... Part of the way I can do that is to rest in this root that has to do with uh, non-attachment with um, a, a real uh, passionate curiosity and an open uh, approach uh, to the situation. And yet at the same time, you know, a clinician is highly trained and is very specifically trained, and it's the same thing with a researcher. There are certain protocols that we have to create in any research project that are crucial for a valid and reliable outcome. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, it's almost like uh, a clinician has a code of ethics, and so does a researcher. There's a way in which you hold yourself in a certain framework uh, so that you really, a lot of the rules of research are to create a framework that keeps your own counter-transference stress from mm -hmm. intruding. Really, it's, it, you know, in research they call it bias, uh, implicit or explicit bias, but in clinical terms it's called counter-transference stress. Right? It's the same animal, really. And uh, to me, because I took that sort of small left turn into research, uh, I think it made me a better clinician mm -hmm. because it made me really uh, be very alert to when I was getting in the way of, of my own work. 
So that's very helpful, as you point out, that actually uh, some of the things that have different names uh, have the same similarity of essence, that uh, biases and uh, counter-transference, you know, are so similar that actually instead of focusing on the... um, the language of each uh, discipline, you really are talking about intellectually the same operations. Yes, exactly. I was noticing something else in where you were talking, and you mentioned something like non-attachment to outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, of course, the words are very evocative of uh, uh, meditative, um, mystical, spiritual approaches. And um, in a way, they produce a different sense in me as a listener than words that would be uh, scientific, uh, uh, quantitative about the way of conducting research. And maybe there is a vocabulary and the impact of the vocabulary uh, in, uh, you know, in creating different attitudes about it. When you describe not, not, you know, something that feels more spiritual, it just engages a different part of me as a person. I, I think you've, you've named how important language is to culture. That when we were talking earlier, mm-hmm. the different cultures within a somatic psychology uh, community that when researchers use a particular language unique to research that they don't translate so that clinicians can understand the the very shared meaning Mm -hmm. that can create a sense of difference across those two cultures but I I think the, the perspective that Christine and I are coming from is that if we pay a little bit more attention to translating these ideas Mm -hmm. across those two cultures, if you will, that we'll find that we've got a lot in common. Yes, that's that's very that's something that's coming out very strongly as as we talk. uh, that sense of uh, uh, something that actually your experience bridges the two cultures and uh, what you're talking about is how you find ways that the same research mind can be at work in both parts. Yeah. So, for instance, there's a concept in research that I find really intriguing and it's uh, one of the sort of root issues of research and in fact you when you take a research class you learn this word on the first day and that word is skepticism and uh, in other words uh, what science um, proliferates and science contributes on the back of skepticism which means that there's a whole kind of uh, bunch of results that occur from this word, and that's that, for instance, you're expected to be transparent. Your research is expected to be transparent. You're supposed to publish how you did it, uh, the methodology, the analysis, all that, because you're supposed to be transparent because uh, you want to be able to have that research result survive the skepticism of your peers Mm -hmm. and that way the skepticism of your peers is what in a sense 
validate, helps to validate your findings. Uh, if it can run that gauntlet, then it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is a very central concept in research. And yet if we translate that word, if, if the word doesn't translate well into clinical terminology, but mm-hmm. I think if I were to take a stab at it, I really think that as a clinician, I find that um, I take, if I take an attitude of neither believing nor disbelieving, of instead engaging with what's occurring in the therapeutic encounter and what's being said and done in the therapeutic encounter. That's part of what we might be getting at. And I think also the, the way that the word skepticism also translates is in how we are enjoined on an ethical level as clinicians to always examine our own potential for bias, our own potential for um, uh, errors, clinical errors, uh, clinical blind spots, uh, clinical biases, uh, whether implicit or explicit. And so that, in a sense, we function well in terms of going into supervision or in self-supervising by questioning our work not in a judgmental way, but always in an open, curious, and um, rigorous way. So science really shows us some rigorous ways to examine uh, a project, whether it's a session or a research study. And I think clinicians can really benefit from that because, frankly, I feel like my training in research has made me a better self-reflector as a clinician. So maybe as a little exercise in bridging the culture gap, um, when you use words like skepticism or critical thinking, the images that come to mind can be of a person frowning and aggressive and judgment and all of these negative thoughts. But what you're describing can actually be something that's very akin to mindfulness and of having a sense that things are not necessarily what they are and having an openness to be what they are as opposed to what you think they are. Beautifully put. Thank you. (laughs) I think also um, the suspension of judgment. And we know as clinicians how important it is to approach our clinical work from the position of not judging. Not, that's not to say not being discriminating, mm-hmm. but suspending judgment until we've got enough information to say, I'm reasonably certain that this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. But we don't say that with too little data. <laughs> <laughs> We wait until session three or four, maybe <laughs> session number five, mm-hmm. before we say, you know, based on what you said and what I've heard and what we've talked about, I feel reasonably certain that this may be one of the things that's going on here. What do you think? Mm-hmm. You see what the client says back. And in fact, there's a there's a a parallel process that goes on in research that strengthens a research study's outcome as well. And that is to go back to participants 
in a research study and say, did I capture what you told me? Does this fit for you? Or to have co-researchers come in and say, this is how I would analyze the data. When I analyze the same data that you gathered, yes, I get very similar results. The themes that emerged for me when I looked at what you've done are the same themes that you've identified. We're reasonably sure now we've got what they call inter-rater reliability. Mm -hmm. And in a way, peer supervision gives us inter-rater reliability on a clinical level. So there's lots, I think there are really lots of parallel processes going on here. Yes, so really what it's just actually it's interesting that that's a sense of uh, instead of uh, going into uh, cognitive or judgmental mode, you're talking about suspending judgment yes. and uh, and getting different perspectives as in peer supervision. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think I would also like to pick up on another thing that Ray mentioned a bit ago. And that's that oftentimes we can, as clinicians, become a bit intimidated uh, and off-put by research because we have a, uh, a mindset that is um, thinking that, uh, you know, that's used to just hearing about huge, well-funded, big studies that require laboratories and tons of sophisticated equipment and uh, all this hoo-ha. Mm-hmm. You know, and when in reality, there's actually some very sweet work that can be done very simply and, and without machines and even without complex statistical mathematical analyses uh, that can be very relevant and very helpful for our field. Mm-hmm. Um, I teach research at Naropa in, in our department, and I require that my students actually go out and do little research projects. And uh, I'd love to describe one. That would be great. Um, so one of my students, uh, I have found an uh, article by a man named Hugo Critchley, who's out of the uh, University of London, who is a brain mapping expert. And he found that, and this is very interesting finding, I think, for our field, by the way, he found that people who can accurately, accurately predict what their heart rate is without, you know, putting their finger to their wrist or their neck, just sit and feel interoceptively their heartbeat and can tell you the, the rate of their heart beating. That people that have that kind of sensory acuity are actually emotionally more intelligent and well-regulated. Hmm. So go figure. We knew this, but research just validated it in a very sweet way. Mm-hmm. And we did use a bunch of sophisticated uh, machinery for that. But one of my brilliant students went out, and we have several departments. We have three different graduate psychology departments. One's transpersonal and one's contemplative and then the other somatic. So what they did was he went out and he asked 10 somatic students to predict their heart rate and 10 transpersonal psychology students to predict their heart rate. And he found that the somatic students were better able to predict their heart rate (laughs) than the transpersonal students. 
And so he did that with absolutely no special equipment. He did it as an assignment for a single class, and it really showed that there's something to training that encourages embodiment, and particularly clinical training that uh, encourages people to have this capacity to look inside on a physical, sensory level. And uh, we think we might pick something up about that and play with that and maybe even try to get that uh, published. Yeah. But I love the story also about uh, just uh, how easy it is to uh, uh, to pick up, you know, to have curiosity and just try and figure out a way to follow that curiosity someplace. Perfect. Exactly. So, you know, in a way, when we were at the conference and we had this discussion with uh, the various participants, one of the questions that came up was, what kinds of things can uh, clinicians do? And I think in lots of ways you have given answers, but maybe as we're approaching the end of this conversation, this would be a good time to uh, put them together in a more digested form. I was struck at the conference in our in our conversation how many people who self-identified as clinicians really did want to engage in research but didn't feel as though they had a forum for doing that. And that's one of the wonderful things about the fact that we've got graduate programs in somatic psychology is that it provides that opportunity to do research with some supervision, with some ethical review criteria in place. Um, and one of the things that I'd like to encourage is some increasing collaboration, particularly among our students and clinicians out in the field. That, for example, um, one of my students did a research study where they interviewed psychotherapists, somatic psychotherapists, about a particular kind of experience. And when did they know, for example, that they were in um, some kind of somatic resonance with mm. the time? It was very helpful to, to the student to understand this phenomenon better. And very helpful, I think, for the clinicians to be asked those questions. Yeah. And to have to come up with an answer, to actually have someone sitting down with them for an hour or an hour and a half, listening carefully to what their experience was like. So I think perhaps one of the easiest things that clinicians could do is if they get asked by a graduate student, if they would be willing to participate in a research study, just to say yes. That's a, but that's also that's a very beautiful point about the fact that uh, clinicians accumulate a lot of information. We each have it in our own corner, and uh, maybe we exchange it with a few peers during peer supervision and discussion. Yeah. But that uh, you know, graduate schools uh, research such as the one you mentioned are a way to cross pollinate and get you know this information gathered and disseminated in a much broader circle. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think I think it's important for clinicians to realize that they don't have to conduct a research study to support good research in somatic psychology. Mm-hmm. They can share. They can share, and they can participate in research. Yes. Okay. Yeah. A couple of ideas that I have is uh, one very sort of simple idea is to donate money to the USABP Research Award Fund. Mm-hmm. Um, this can do nothing but help <laughs> support research. Another thing I think is a lesson that we can learn from things like DBT and CBT. I think one of the reasons why they're enjoying such popularity uh, at this point is that they were actually very committed to research-like behaviors from the very beginning. And so they have actually all along not necessarily done formal research, but done informal research that helped them to refine their technique until it got really um, in the form it is today that so many people appreciate. And for instance, I know in DBT, they, for years, at these psychiatric hospitals, they would do pre-test, post-test. So they would interview clients uh, sometimes literally before and after every single session and ask them what worked about this session, what didn't work about this session, where was the turning point for you, uh, where did it feel like it it, um, it it got sticky or uh, confusing. And so they actually uh, really had a very strong commitment to uh, just finding out what worked mm-hmm. rather than um, just to directly trying to promote themselves. And they did that for upwards of, I think, about 11 years before mm-hmm. they really started publishing. And that's an area where, you know, it's a little tender for us, but I think that, in a sense, we want to potentially relax a little bit about just just promoting our work and really go uh, toward the quality behaviors and activities, professional and ethical activities, that help the work get so good that it self-promotes. Yes. So at the very least, even if for some people it feels difficult to say does it work or not, at the very least have a question of what is it that work, at what point does it work, in what way does it work. Perfect. Yeah. So I want to to say that this has been a wonderful conversation, and I think it would be absurd to think of it as the end, even though this particular conversation ends. And maybe we should think about regrouping in a little while and just uh, continuing the conversation and adding any uh, feedback or other thoughts or uh, make it the next step. Happy to do that. Sounds wonderful. Good. Thanks, Ray and uh, Christine. My pleasure. Thanks, Serge. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com.